So I, I want to throw a question to you guys as we start today. What comes to your mind when you think about self-control? Think about that for a second. What comes to your mind when you think about self-control? Maybe self-control to you is walking by Baskin and Robbins and skipping over that double scoop of chocolate chip cookie dough ice cream. Or maybe that's just me. But think about it for a sec. What comes to your mind, or maybe who comes to your mind, when you think about self-control? Here's how one dictionary defines self-control. It says, the ability to manage one's impulses, emotions, and behaviors to achieve long-term goals. So for me, when I think about what self-control looks like, I naturally tend to think about some of history's greatest athletes. I, many of these athletes display self-control in this crazy way in order to buffet their minds and body. They see a goal in front of them, they deny themselves, and anything that deters them from reaching these goals, they'll set it aside. Whether it's unhealthy foods, whether it's fun activities or leisure time, whatever gets in the way of practice to be the greatest, they'll have self-control. Take, for example, the second greatest basketball player of all time, Michael Jordan. This is my analogy, it's going to say it the way I want to say it. So take, for example, Michael Jordan. Seriously, but look at Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan wouldn't let anything get in front of him to be the greatest basketball player of all time. This was noticed from many of his teammates in the way that he practiced. Michael would not stop practicing just because practice ended. He would tell some of his teammates, hey, let's play one-on-one -on -one a couple more times. I'm going to keep going. And they'll say, hey, man, we're about to go hang out and go here and do this. And Mike's like, no, like he had a goal in front of him to be the greatest. Michael would not let anything come in front of his goal, and it took self-control for him to display such things. But this begs the question, is there a difference between self-control displayed in a worldly sense versus what the Bible says about self-control? And if so, what's the difference? Well, for starters, I want to point to something that motivated Michael Jordan to display such self-control to achieve that greatness. So quote, listen to this quote by Michael Jordan. He says, the game is my wife. It demands loyalty and responsibility, and it gives me back fulfillment and peace. Did you catch that? Did you hear the motivation for Michael's self-control? MJ found it fitting to sacrifice his comforts, his desires, and even his freedoms in order to find fulfillment and peace from the sport of basketball. Now, if that's the case with basketball, how much more true or deserving is self-control for the things of God. Which brings us to the scriptures today and what they say about true self-control and why it is so vital for the believer. So in order to help navigate this today, we'll look at three points. First point, we'll see self-control's source. Second point, we'll see is self-control's goal. And in third and finally, we'll see self-control perfectly displayed. With that first self-control source, the main difference between self-control displayed in a Christian versus a non-Christian is the source where self-control comes from. Look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. True self-control finds its source in the power and outworking of the Holy Spirit. This is why self-control isn't optional. The Spirit works in the lives of all believers to produce such fruit. Let me give you two examples of how we know this to be true. One, think about the times where you failed to display self-control in areas you knew you shouldn't have. What's the response? 
You get guilty. You start beating yourself over the head. You're like, man, I, I should have done this. I didn't do this. Why does that happen? Well, that's conviction. That's conviction from the Spirit. The reality is, as Christians, the character in God, the character of God and the law of God is written on our hearts so that when we don't meet the standard that He set, we naturally feel convicted and grieve the Spirit. That's a grace of God. That's a grace of God by way of the Holy Spirit. Let me give you another example of how we know this to be true. We expect self-control in other Christians. Now, here's the reality. A lot of us got a PhD in seeing other people's lack of self-control, but then we don't know how to evaluate our own. Why is that? We'll say things like, hey, brother, brother, sister, like as a Christian, you shouldn't act that way. You shouldn't do that, brother, as a Christian. Or we'll say things like, bro or sus, like you're not a slave to that. You're not a slave to those desires or that temptation. You have the, you have the power to say no. Why do we say such things? Because we know self-control isn't something for super-Christians, which don't exist. Or self-control isn't just meant for pastors and leaders. It's a part of the fruit of the Spirit for every believer, and it's founded in the character and heart of God Himself. Now, let me try to define what self-control is and what it isn't. For the Christian, self-control is not arbitrary. It has a basis, a standard, and a source. Also, self-control is not for the sake of vain pleasures. This is why when we think about an athlete like Michael Jordan, think about, think about MJ. MJ, so many times we look at all his accomplishments, six finals appearances, six championships, six finals MVPs, and all these other MVPs. Even now, today, we debate, can somebody ever be as good as Michael Jordan? He's the greatest basketball player of all times, and none of that means anything in the economy of God. It means nothing. I can guarantee you that MJ, when he's on his deathbed, the last thing he'll be thinking about is the sport of basketball. It won't matter. Therefore, self-control for the believer is a devotion to God's glorious ultimate and not our own desires. Let me say that again. Self-control for the believer is a devotion to God's glorious ultimate and not our own desires. In other words, to truly display self-control as a Christian is to remove self from the equation in order for us to be controlled by the Spirit of God. So the source of self-control is God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, think about how crazy this proverb sounds in light of that reality. It says, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. It, does, that, does that sound like a Christian? A city defenseless, unprotected from any attack that comes its way? Or more clearly, any temptation or desire that arises and that person is defenseless into resisting it. This is the type of person that acts on their first impulses. First things that come to their mind, they say it. First desire that comes their way, they, they give way to it. Whatever temptation happens and they cannot withstand it. Some ways we call this person a person that has no filter. No chill. They just do what first comes to their mind. Now, now, why is this so problematic? Because though we've been redeemed by Christ, the sin of our flesh and Satan and all of his devices are always trying to pull us away from the things that are right. Therefore, this is why we have to be skeptical of the first thoughts or inclinations that come to our mind. We got to be skeptical about it. Well, Paul says it this way in Galatians chapter 5. He says, basically, before we get to Galatians 5, he says that a Christian should be indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, everything that they do has to be guided by that. So, so should a Christian not be able to control their desires and their temptations? By no means. 
We must remember who it is that dwells in us and whose we are. Galatians chapter 5, he says it this way, but I say to you, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So what is Paul saying? Paul is saying that though you've been awakened to the gospel and you want to actually live righteously for Christ, sin is still in your flesh looking for an opportunity to snatch you away from Christ. And this is why self-control is a must. It's so much of a must that in and of yourself, you don't have the ability to carry it out. Therefore, God in his graciousness gives us a helper to help us live out this seemingly impossible task of self-control, and that's grace. So so we know who the source of self-control is by way of the Spirit, but that begs the question, what does self-control look like when we're actually led by the Spirit? And that brings us to our second point, self-controls go. Second, self-controls go. So what is the goal of self-control? Simply put, the goal of self-control is for us to love God and love people. Say that again. The goal of self-control is that we love God and love people. First, self-control allows us to love God. Proverbs 29, 11, and 22, it says, A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. A man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. So the book of Proverbs loves giving you these real-life scenarios of what foolishness looks like when a person lacks self-control or when self-control is absent. This example in Proverbs 29 is talking about anger. It's the person that blows up at every situation and then most likely justifies it with some cute phrase. It'd be like, man, man, that person did this, therefore I responded this way. Or man, if you wouldn't have done that, I wouldn't have responded the way that I responded. Instead of actually mortifying our sin, we end up justifying it. Let me give you some real life examples of what this looks like. Road rage. How many of you people have been in a car with somebody and you're like, man, that person is crazy in the car. Road rage. Somebody cuts you off in traffic, and then what do they do? Oh, I'm angry. I'm going to speed up to them. Let me look at them staring up in the eye and tell them that I'm disgusted. And they better not try to turn back into traffic because I'm going to block them out. It's a lack of self-control. Or give me another more serious example. Spousal abuse and child abuse. How many times have I told my kids to pick up those toys? or, or, Or your husband or wife, you've asked them to do multiple different things, and they fail to do it or to live up the standard that you have, and what happens? That person lacks self-control, and they act out of their anger. And and sometimes this stuff can be really serious and detrimental to the point of abuse. It can be emotional or verbal or even physical because you did not have the self-control of getting your own way. Or let me give you another example, unteachableness. We've all met that person that is completely unteachable, and sometimes it might be us. Unteachable. Nobody can tell you anything Like, and let alone, don't let somebody rebuke you. Because if they rebuke you, you've already thought of a rebuttal. As soon as they try to tell you something or teach you something or call you on something, the whole time they're talking, you're already thinking about what you're going to say in response. It's a lack of self-control. You can't control yourself to be able to hear. Or as the Bible says, you can't be slow to speak and quick to listen. Let me give you another example. It's isolation or lack of relationships. It's that person that constantly has new friends or or new jobs or new things because they can't deal with the fact that when someone hurts them or upsets them, they must respond in a way that's negative. 
So they're like, you know what, man, that person harmed me, I'm through with them. Or, or, or man, this job, it wasn't working out the way that I wanted because the boss said something that I didn't like, so I'm through with them. The Bible says that in order for church to work, in order for relationships to work, it has to be of grace and not of law. Yet this person is like, man, I'm through with people and I don't want to deal with people. I become isolated because I don't have the self-control to be able to say, hey, let me not respond with anger or just going to my first desire to retreat. All these things come as a result of lacking self-control. And as Proverbs says it, giving full vent of your spirit will naturally lead you to sinning against God. No matter how right it may feel in the moment, the Lord calls you to obey him rather than your desires or emotions. And please don't hear me saying that somehow anger only shows itself in the person that yells. Passive-aggressive anger is just as detrimental at times, and it is still a lack of self-control. Jesus says this. He says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Or in this context, if you love God, you will use self-control. So not only does self-control help us to love God, but it also helps us to love people. One of the tragic things about American culture is that we are, we are hyper-individualistic in a lot of ways. We think, well, my stuff don't bother nobody else. This is my way. It's, it's my dream. It's my things to do. We don't see the way that our own things will affect other people around us. Let me get real personal with you for a second. So, like, I love my wife. Like, I love my wife and my children. Side note, my wife's birthday is today, so happy birthday, boo. Love you. Like, I love my wife and my children. But the reality is, I'm still learning and seeing the depths of just how much my decisions or my lack of self-control affects them. Like, I'm still seeing that. Prime example, sleep patterns. Like, man, I, I, like, back in the day, like, I could stay up all hours of the night. Like, I could stay up a long time. And sometimes that creeps back in, that temptation, it comes in. And sometimes I'll be up late at night, man, 12 or 1 o'clock in the morning, watching something on Netflix, reading a theology paper, studying something. And, and, and I'm like, man, it's getting late. And I, I end up going to sleep later than I should. Now, that might not have been a problem a couple years ago, but, but now I got two children. I got a two-year-old son and a seven-month-old daughter. So guess what? Daddy might have went to sleep late. But my kids, bright and early in the morning, it's 7 o'clock in the morning, and they're like, yay, let's have fun, let's play. And I'm like, no. I'm tired. But guess what? My lack of self-control and my sleep pattern affects my kids. Instead of them having a 100% dad with them to be able to play with them and love them, they got the dad that's sleepy. And guess what? That also falls off my wife. Because now, if I didn't use the self-control to go to sleep when I should... That naturally affects my wife because she has to pick up my slack. Let me give you another example. I love our church. Like, I, like, I, like I love y'all. Like, I, I love my church. I've been at College Park now for 10 years. I came here because someone had a You're Invited card, which I bet you I didn't think people actually use it, but they do. I'm a prime example. A, a You're Invited card to bring me to College Park. Invited me, came here. Man, I have literally built relationships that will last for eternity. People that I love, like I love my small group. Like I feel like we got the best small group in the church, no offense. But I love them. Like I, like I love the relationships, the brothers and sisters that I've been able to, to, to be around. But guess what? My lack of self-control in my life can negatively affect the church that I love. It's easy to see that as a pastor because guess what? If I don't subdue desires or temptation or these things, it can negatively affect the people I love in my church. One way, it can disqualify me from ministry. If there's things in my life that go unchecked, I can literally harm the people that the Lord has called me to shepherd. 
But, but it's not just me. Like, think about it for yourself. We must see this the lack of self-control doesn't just affect us, but it affects the people around us. So let me throw some things your way to consider. Your physical health doesn't just affect you. One of the sins we never talk about in church is gluttony. It's, it's, we never talk about that a lot of times. It's that, it's that acceptable sin in some ways. But guess what? If we live a gluttonous lifestyle, if we're living a sedentary lifestyle, not exercising, eating whatever we want, that negatively affects the people around you. And not just in the extreme sense that if you always eat unhealthy, never exercise, it'll affect your health and it affects everything about you. But, but, but guess what? Your, your family is going to be the victims of that. Because if you're moody because you're not exercising like you should or you're always tired or if you get a heart attack because you've lived this unhealthy lifestyle, your family gets affected. Or another example, your purity doesn't just affect you. I've had conversations with brothers that I love and I'm like, man, bro, you got to fight that temptation of sin. You have to fight against that sin. Like, and then when brothers or sisters fail, I'm sure you've been there because I felt that. I'm like, man, bro, like, man, what? like, bro. Like, call me next time. When you're struggling, call me. Like, don't just give way to the temptation. I know it's hard. Because now, guess what? As 1 Corinthians says, sexual sin doesn't just affect you, but it affects the body. And it's talking about the actual body of believers. I'm burdened. I'm hurt. Because I don't want my brother to, to, to do something that wrecks his whole life for the sake of this temptation. Your emotional well-being doesn't just affect you. I remember growing up, there was this stigma that, only people that are crazy get counseling. I must be crazy because I'm like, man, everybody needs counseling. Everybody does in some way. So, so, so if you struggle with depression or anxiety or you got things in your life that's been traumatic or hurtful or you just got unhelpful ways that you've thought or believed, you, that emotional well-being can affect the people around you. Your spiritual disciplines. How much are you reading your word? Are you consistently reading your word? Are you praying? Are you doing these things that the Lord has called you to do in order for your soul to be thriving? If you don't do it, guess what? It affects the people around you. Me and my buddies got this saying that we say to one another, basically that if one of us are kind of tripping, if we're not doing things as we should, um, if we're acting kind of out of character, we'll ask the one another, have you been in the word today? In other words, what we're saying is, man, there's a difference when you're not communing with the Lord. It affects the people around you. If you fail to use self-control, it will affect the people around you. And also, if that's true, the negative is true, the positive is true as well. If you exercise self-control in all areas of life, the people you love will be beneficiaries of that fruit. Proverbs 16.32 says it this way, he who rules his spirit is better than he who takes a city. It is more precious than taking a city with all the power and wealth that comes from that. It's better to display the blessing and the goal of self-control than even that, because it will produce in you a better love for God and a better love for people. And this brings us to our third and final point, self-control perfectly displayed. So we're going to actually jump over to 1 Peter chapter 2. If you can turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, we'll look at verses 21 to 24. 1 Peter 2, 21 to 24 says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was the deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, 
he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. God gives us the source of self-control. He sets the goal of self-control, but to go above and beyond as he always does, he gives us the perfect display of self-control in the God-man, Jesus. Now, the book of Proverbs isn't this simple book of 50 stands. We, we know that. Or it isn't just about giving you advice on what to do in this or that situation. Though it surely does such things, Proverbs is ultimately pointing you to the person and work of Jesus. So it's no coincidence that as we hear about the wisdom and blessing of self-control, Jesus steps on the scene and manifests self-control perfectly. He does it perfectly. He shows many truths regarding self-control. First, Jesus shows that self-control resists temptation. You see it in verse 22. No matter how much we're tempted, no matter how much we're tempted with sins or desires, guess what? Jesus was tempted even more. He, was, he took the epitome of temptation. Think about Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is there and Satan comes to tempt him. He says, Jesus, if you bow down to me, I'll give you the nations. Now, here's the reality. Jesus is probably thinking, man, I created the nations. How are you going to give me something that's already mine? But there was a true sense in which that Satan did have power over the nations that were turning to him instead of God. And Jesus displayed self-control because he knew the way to get the nations as a man, as the Messiah, wasn't to bow down to Satan. The way that he would get the nations is by him completing the task that his father gives him, and that, that meant going to the cross and enduring such treatment. So Jesus displays self-control. It means self-control resists temptation. Second, Jesus shows that self-control is meekness and not weakness. You can look at that in verse 23. Can you imagine the self-control that it takes to allow your own creation to crucify you? You remember Jesus said it in the synoptics. He said, if I wanted to, I can call angels right down right now and tear up the whole earth. The reason I'm here is based off of my own plan that me and the Father had before the foundation of the world. Think about that. Think about that. Lest you think that self-control is weakness, Jesus is showing is that it's actually the opposite. How much strength does it take to endure such harsh treatment and yet respond not with violence, but praying for your enemies? This is one of the main differences between Islam and Christianity. One religion says, you may have to kill somebody for what you believe. Yet Christianity says, you, you might die for what you believe. That's self-control because it's a greater good. It's a higher good. It's the glory of God and not ourself. Self-control is meekness. Third and finally, Jesus shows also that self-control gives reward. See that in verse 24. It is because of the self-control of Jesus him doing what he knew he had to do, even in the face of knowing that he would have to go to a cross, die, be beaten. In that self-control, it is because of that that we get the reward of eternal life. Jesus lived a perfect life. He resisted temptation, laid down his life to be beaten and crucified and buried. And once he resurrected, he enjoyed the reward of redeeming a people to himself. Grasp the irony of this. Jesus was perfectly self-controlled, even to the point of death so that he could save a people that lack self-control. That's the gospel. 
the gospel is that, guess what? Everything that we fail to rightly do, the Son of God in our place did it. We needed perfection. We needed a holy life, a life of always being self-controlled, saying no to sin, saying no to temptation, saying no to selfishness. Jesus did that. He lived this life, and he, and he did that. And not only did he do that, but he also paid the price that our sin deserved. And this is what happens. The guilty, us, gets traded for the innocent. The punishment we deserve was on him. The blessings that he, that he got were the beneficiaries of. And this is the beauty of the gospel. And this is the power and motivation that leads us to make every effort to be controlled by the Spirit and not by our flesh. So since you have the Holy Spirit and you've been called to love God and love people because of the work of Jesus, I want to leave you with two simple applications. Two simple applications. First, take a survey of the areas in your life where you lack self-control. This needs to be an honest evaluation. Where am I at? What's some things that I constantly fall prey to? What's some things that I know I should say no to, but I always say yes? And, and if you're being transparent, one of the best ways to do this is don't just take a personal evaluation. Ask other people in your life that know you, the people that know you and love you, say, man, what are areas that I struggle with? What are areas that you see me lacking self-control? Honest evaluation. Second, utilize the body of Christ in those areas to help you walk by the Spirit in displaying such self-control. We've been blessed with a body of believers at College Park that love Jesus, people that are not perfect, people that are broken just like us. I'm sure that same person you might ask to help you, they might ask you back to help them as well. But utilize that. Find some people in your life, whether it be in your small group or your women's Bible study or your men's Bible study or your youth group, and say, hey, here's some areas where I'm not displaying self-control. Can you help me and keep me accountable? I want to live by the Spirit so that I won't gratify the desires of the flesh. So there's this illustration I want to use. So um, maybe you guys have been on social media, especially in a pandemic. We're all on social media. You self-control on there too. <laughs> but you've been on social media. There's this challenge. It's called the, the candy challenge or the, the fruit snack challenge. Maybe you guys have seen it. But let me explain what basically what happens. Basically, you have a, a parent. A parent, what they do is they take their two-year-old kid, two- or three-year-old kid, and they say, hey, come here, little Johnny. Come here, come here. Hey, you sit at the table. And I'm going to get some candy and some fruit snacks. And what they do is they put it in a bowl right in front of the kid as they sit at the table. And, and, and they're like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. Hey, little Johnny, just stay right here. Stay right here. Mommy or daddy is going to go to the bathroom. I'm going to go around the corner, and I'll come back, and then you can eat the candy or the fruit snacks. And if you've seen those videos, what happens? Well, typically, the parent sets this whole thing up. They put the camera right there, and you can see the reactions of the kids. There's, there's one kid, and there's another kid. The first kid that you see actually often, the kid is looking at the fruit snacks, and they're like, man, this looks really good. Whew, man, my mom or dad is taking a long time. That's a long bathroom break. And they give in to the temptation and take that candy or that fruit snack and put it in their mouth and eat it. And the mom or dad comes back and they say, hey, I, I thought I told you to wait. But it's a cute little joke. And you got the other kid that they see the fruit snacks there and they wait. They're, they're tempted to. They're like, yeah, I see it there, but um, I'm going to wait back. And then the parent comes back and they see that their kid has not touched the fruit snack or the candy. And they're like, oh, I love you. Thank you for obeying and being obedient. Now, this is cute. When we think about two-year-olds and three-year-olds, but the reality is that as Christians, even as adults, we do the same thing to God. 
How many times have God said, hey, don't touch this or don't do that or not in this time? I have something better for you. Just obey my words. And what do we do? We're most likely a lot of times like that first kid. A lot of times we're like that first kid. We're like, man, God's taking too long. God, did you really say that? Did, did you really mean that? Like, do you love me? Why would you leave me waiting here? I told you I wanted to get married. Why, why you ain't send me that godly spouse yet? Or I told you I'm trying to like, I'm trying to achieve certain things. I, okay, you know what? I'm going to just get it my own way. I'm, I'm going to do it my own way because I can't trust your words and believe you at your word because somehow it's not for my good at this moment. This lie of this temptation is more desiring than what you've said. And what do we do? We choose temptation or desires and lack self-control and it ends up turning us away from God instead of to God, trusting in his ways or higher than our ways. And this is why self-control is so vital. It's about which that we get from self-control. It's the blessing of being in, right, in, in, in a right thinking about God being the ultimate glory of our desires and not ourself. And this is what the Spirit gives us. This is how we can love God with people, and this is how the body of believers help us to do this. And guess what? You will fail. You will struggle at times. You will, but that's not an excuse to not fight. That actually is the thing that makes you fight more because Christ perfectly done this for the sake of us to be forgiven, and now he frees you to fight this. Let me wrap this together and bring this home with a verse in Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2 sums this up. Titus chapter 2, verses 11, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, awaiting for our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself up to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is the beautiful and overwhelming grace of God that we've been given, and it is because of such things that self-control is vital. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, you know there's so many things that would want to pull us away from you, whether it be our own sin, whether it be the powers of the air, things that want to take us away from choosing God's glory instead for our glory. You know that, and I thank you that you didn't leave us here without help. You've went above and beyond giving us everything we need to say no. Holy Spirit, I thank you for being with us to, to, to give us conviction. And Jesus, I thank you for atoning for the ways in which that we fail, but also freeing us to fight. And I pray for my brothers and sisters at our church that they would see this as an opportunity for growth not to feel condemned, not to feel like, man, I can never get it right, but to say that, hey, I know that in the life to come, there will be no, there'll be no temptations. There will be no struggles with saying no to these desires. But in that, we'll be able to see you face to face and live out a beautiful reality of what it means to be redeemed by Christ. So give us the power we need and be with us in Jesus' name. Amen.